As it says, the sermon text is Luke 18, 18 through 34, page 877 in the Rack Bible, if you want to turn there. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. The Gospel of the Lord. Oh, look at that. Last week's sermon notes are still up here. I could do two at once if you wanted me to. Anybody? No? Okay. <sighs> Who goes to heaven? I asked that question at the start of last week's sermon, and in slightly different forms, the question comes back twice in today's passage. What must I do to inherit eternal life, is what the rich young ruler asks, and then who can be saved? Uh, the other hearers ask. What do these terms mean? Well, to be saved means to be rescued or delivered, to be defended and protected, ultimately brought to a place of peace and security, to have your enemies defeated. Uh, there's Old Testament precedent to this idea of salvation as uh, experiencing a military victory. Someone comes and rescues you to be set free from all causes of duress, whether slavery, oppression, danger, disease, disaster, means to be made safe, right? That sounds pretty good. Eternal life, it's not merely life that just never ends, that extended duration of life, but it's the life of the age to come. If I were to skip ahead to, uh, well, I, I don't seem to have control over that thing for some reason, but... Uh, I think it's verse 30, but um, let's see. There, you go. Yeah, thank you. Verse 30. Excellent. Do I have control now? Yes. And you gave me control over it, too. Whether you knew it or not, I have control. I like having, pastors love having control, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> all right. The age to come, eternal life. Those two words, age and eternal, are based on the same root. One is just the adjective form and the other is the noun. So it's, it's not just never-ending life, it's the life of the age to come. 
So you often hear the idea in all kinds of sci-fi and fantasy stories and others that it wouldn't actually be good to live forever. People live forever and they just get sick and tired of it, if you, you know, tuck everlasting or things like that. And yeah, this, That sentiment is probably correct if you're talking about an extended life that never ends in this world as it exists today in all its brokenness. But the question in today's text is about eternal life in the age to come. That is an age where not only sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more, but also boredom, tedium, apathy, monotony are felt and feared no more. This is a world where all things are new. Each day is new. We will dwell with our God whose beauty and glory and majesty we will never tire of in all eternity, where we can greet each day with the enthusiasm of a toddler eager to discover a whole new world each day, at least a toddler when he's in a good mood. There are some days when, you know, I can identify with the mood a little bit more, but, but it's a time when we will finally be who we were created to be and pursue the unique purpose and, and calling that God has for each of us, working and tending his renewed creation without any thorns or thistles, any futility or drudgery or fatigue. That sounds pretty good, too. Oh, it did print double-sided. Each day sweeter than before. Eternal life, salvation. That is what everybody longs for, even those who don't believe it will ever exist or who look for something else to bring it about, whether a government program or something like that. The question is, how do we get there? That is what the rich, young ruler asks at the start of our text today. The answer turns out to be, I'll give it ahead of time, you can't get there. And it's at that point that some good news comes in. So let's look at this conversation here. The conversation between Jesus and this man we call the rich young ruler is recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, there are some things that we learn from each account that we don't learn from the others. For example, Matthew call, is the one that calls him a young man. Luke identifies him as a ruler, possibly a leader of the, the synagogue. So it's common to add those details together, and you, you, you hear people call him the rich young ruler. So that's probably what I'll call him because I can't get it out of my head um, to call him the rich young ruler. Mark's gospel adds a fascinating detail in the midst of the conversation that I want to note here. In Mark chapter 10, Mark tells us that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and loved him. And that gives us an important guardrail for our conversation here. Uh, we have to understand that Jesus' interaction with him is loving. It is for his good. So the headline is not, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ destroys rich young ruler or anything like that. The headline is, Jesus Christ loves the rich young ruler. Uh, one other note before we get into the conversation and teaching that follows, let me point out that this can be a tricky passage, can't it? If you were to look at verse 22 where Jesus tells him, sell everything you've got, give it away and follow me, uh, this, and take that out of context as really how we all are to be saved, it can be frightening. Uh, how are you to be saved? If that's what this boils down to for all people, then we're probably all in trouble. Has anyone here sold everything that they've possessed and... Probably not, right? If that's the gospel, then it's not good news, right? But I don't believe that's what the text is all about here. If we walk through the text and make just some basic observations on each verse in the conversation here, I think a slightly different picture will begin to emerge. So let's jump in there. First verse, a ruler asked him, 
good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's two things that we'll point out here. First, he asks, what must I do? That's different, significantly different from asking, how can I receive eternal life? It's, what must I do? By phrasing it that way, the rich ruler, his question assumes that there's some action he can take to inherit eternal life, something he can do, some work he can perform. But the other interesting thing about it that we might not have noticed, uh, unless Jesus had pointed it out, is what he calls Jesus, good teacher. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus doesn't go straight for the question itself. He latches on to really the odd way in that context that this man addresses him, good teacher. This wasn't just a common way of addressing a teacher or rabbi. It's not a standard polite form of address like your honor or something like that. And Jesus sees that there is something behind those words, good teacher. See, you and I can get a little distracted by this because, you know, we understand that Jesus is God, right? So it's not odd for us to call Jesus good at all. What seems odd to us is that Jesus seems to reject the idea that he's good. He says only God is good. So is Jesus somehow denying that he's God? Again, the key is just look at what he says. He does not say, don't call me good. He asks this rich young ruler a question, why are you calling me good? He doesn't wait for an answer. He wants the rich ruler to ask himself, why did I use those words? Jesus isn't making a theological, Christological statement about his own deity. He's making a statement about this rich young ruler's heart. Here's what I think that statement is. You're coming to me, seeing me as a good teacher, because you want me to teach you goodness, teach you to be good, so that you can inherit eternal life. But your questioning starts out on the wrong foot. Only God is good. Just think about that statement in and of itself. No one is good except God alone. Therefore, all human beings are not good, right? This is some basic logic here. And if all human beings are not good, what does that say about our ability to inherit eternal life? Nothing good, right? So the ruler is asking the wrong question. But Jesus answers his question anyway in verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Would you categorize that list as law or gospel? It's law, obviously, right? I mean, it's straight out of the Ten Commandments. So Jesus answers the ruler's question on its own terms. You're asking what you're supposed to do? What is the standard uh, for, for righteousness before God to inherit eternal life? It's clearly spelled out for you in the law. You already know it. And what does the rich ruler say? All these I've kept from my youth. Now, that's a telling statement on on two levels. Uh, First, uh, though he thinks he's kept the law from youth, it's interesting that he still felt the need to come to Jesus. He's still looking for something more. 
He seems to sense that there's something incomplete with his law-keeping. It's not cutting it. It's not getting him that where he wants to be. There seems to be a note of disappointment in his response here, like when you call tech support and they ask you to turn it off and turn it on again, and you honestly just, you think I haven't tried that about 20 times already? You think I would have wasted two hours on hold without trying that first? I'm not bitter or anything, but, you know, it's, it's at this point in the conversation, though, that Mark's gospel says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus has compassion on this man who is looking, but looking in all the wrong places, all the wrong ways for what he needs uh, for the right relationship with God. Second insight, uh, second reason his answer is telling is that he apparently believes that he actually has kept all of the commandments from his youth. I like what John Calvin says about that statement. It is quite certain that he was an immeasurable distance away from what he boasted of having achieved. It is quite certain that he is not even close to what he thinks he's accomplished here. Once again, no one is good except God, right? No one has kept God's law, God's standard for what goodness is. No one has kept it perfectly, not even close. So the rich ruler, he seems to know that he's missing something, but he can't tell what it is. He thinks he's kept the law. Maybe he thinks he just needs to find, you know, the right teacher to help him take one more step to add some perfection onto what he's already achieved. So that's where we are in the conversation when we then come to verse 22. Jesus tells him, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So he's speaking to this man's deceived, deluded heart. This isn't general instruction for all people on how to get to eternal life. It's specific instruction to this specific man to help him see his problem. It is a fundamental problem that we all share, but there's, it's a unique way of addressing it and getting him to see this. Uh, Calvin, in his discussion of this passage, goes on to say that to teach him how little he had advanced toward the righteousness which he too boldly replied he had fulfilled, it was worthwhile to search out his intimate shortcoming. Since he abounded in his riches, his heart was fixed upon them. So to help him see, to help press the law into his heart and get him to see that, no, you haven't kept it. You haven't lived up to the standard. He's kind of turning up the temperature here uh, on the law to show him, uh, no, you haven't lived up to this righteousness. You're, you're trusting in these riches. Jesus exposed something in this man's heart, something that he wasn't able to deal with, so he went away sad, as verse 23 tells us, for he was extremely rich. What did Jesus uncover in the ruler's heart? His heart was fixed upon riches. He was trusting in what he had stored up on earth. In the next couple of verses, Jesus says, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, at this point, as Jesus is teaching, the ruler has left, sadly. 
and Jesus is talking to those who remained, his disciples, this exchange still helps us to understand what he was doing with the rich young ruler sort of pastorally, how he was trying to help counsel him. Jesus understands the difficulty this man faced. He doesn't say what maybe some of us might tend to think when we read this, you know, what an idiot, what a mistake this man made, how easy it should have been. How couldn't he see what he needed to do? Why couldn't he just suck it up and do what Jesus asked? We're talking about eternity after all. Your comfort in this life just isn't worth it. No, Jesus understands. He says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom. Now, these words about wealth, they hit us differently today than they did back then. Those who heard it back then said, then who can be saved? And that reaction shows us that they believed that wealth was a sure sign of righteousness, sure sign of, of God's favor. If there's anybody that deserves to be saved, it's, it's the wealthy. Today, we often view the, the wealthy with suspicion. You know, what evil deeds must you have done to amass such wealth? Or how can you hold on to such wealth when, when people are starving? And um, that, that can tend to be our, our attitude today, but not so much back then. The rich ruler who spoke with Jesus was very well respected. Think about the way the riches of, of Abraham or, or Job in the Old Testament are, are construed. You know, the, the ruler's riches were considered a mark of God's favor, a mark of his own righteousness. So was the fact, by the way, that he was a ruler. He had a position of some kind of leadership among the Jewish people, which would have had religious significance, uh, whether it was a position in the synagogue or some kind of town council or something. They just didn't separate uh, their, their faith and politics the, the way that we might today. This is, so this is somebody that people looked up to. He was well regarded. So that's important then for us to understand. Jesus wasn't asking him to get rid of things that people regarded as sinful in his life. His wealth wasn't seen as evil. It's not that he's throwing wild parties on his yacht or something. They have yachts back then, I don't know. But his wealth was a mark of, of righteousness, of stability, of self-reliance. This is what I think Jesus has really exposed in his heart and asked him to, to leave behind. It's what Jesus was getting at all along. You know, why do you call me good? Only God is good. You can't learn what you're asking to be taught. If you want to know what you need to do to inherit eternal life, you already know the commands. You already know your effort to keep them isn't getting you there. It's just creating a delusion of righteousness. What you need to do instead is let go of your efforts to achieve your own righteousness. Give up every last shred of self-reliance and just come to Christ. He would have had to have left both his wealth and his position as a ruler, really, to go follow Jesus, traipsing around Judea with him. That just makes no sense. Why would you, why would you do that? So the reason that th it's difficult for this man has less to do with his desire to enjoy a lavish lifestyle and more to do with the massive pool of righteousness that he believes he's stored up. The reason it's hard for him to leave his wealth, it's not that it would be leaving behind sin, it's leaving behind righteousness that's a challenge for him. 
He's young, as Matthew tells us. He's a leader in his community. He's wealthy. He's righteous in the eyes of his people. High-flying adored, so righteous, so easily, and so soon in life. He can't leave it, not because it's sinful, but because he's trusting for it, in it for his righteousness. The basic point, then, really isn't so different from the context that came right before, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the example of the little children. Jesus is showing this man, fundamentally, he needs to let go of the illusion of self-reliant self-righteousness and rely wholly on Christ. But he is so deep into the delusion of self-justification through personal goodness and law-keeping. He thinks he's got himself together, but he's stuck in an illusion, and he can't get out of it. Now, we don't know the rest of this young man's story. If he ever did make it out of the illusion by God's grace, what we do know ends there. We now consider Jesus' words to those who stuck around after the ruler left. They asked him, as we saw, then who can be saved? Again, in their view, if this young, righteous pillar of the community can't be saved, can't inherit eternal life, then surely no one can. Surely no one can be saved. How is it possible for anybody to be saved? Jesus doesn't debate that point. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Within that answer, Jesus confirmed what his hearers kind of feared, that with man, it is impossible. You cannot do what is required to enter the kingdom. Again, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You know you haven't kept them. Romans 3, 23, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And good deeds cannot erase bad deeds. This is Gospel 101. By works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You haven't kept the law. You can't work your way into the kingdom. And your attempts to work your way into the kingdom will only, ironically, drive you further and further away. You first have to begin by burning it all to the ground and starting with this. It's impossible. No one is good but God. But, but what is impossible with man is possible with God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. If only God is good, then the goodness that is required for eternal life can only come from God. It can't come from us. Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. It is outside of us. How does that work? Well, we'll get there in the closing verses of our passage today. But first, uh, St. Peter wants to talk to Jesus about something that we see in verse 28. Uh, Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. Now, I don't consider this to be a boast uh, from Peter. Well, look, we're better than him. We're succeeding where he failed. I don't think that's what he's doing because... Jesus doesn't swat it down like it's a boast. Jesus instead gives some encouragement. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. These are words of encouragement to disciples who have made significant personal 
sacrifices. And Jesus promises that the cost is worth it. So, just to keep this straight, your works cannot earn eternal life, but that does not mean that your works don't matter. What the disciples had encountered already is the fact that grace is free, but it doesn't always come cheap. God supplies all the goodness, all the righteousness required for eternal life. We supply nothing. We receive it as a gift. But in receiving the gift, we often find we pay a price, so to speak. You do see that with the rich young ruler. He certainly saw it. Following Christ for him would make a significant impact on his life. In letting go of self-righteousness, he would be letting go of both his riches and his position. It would really impact his life in every way. His entire life would get flipped, turned upside down. He recognized that cost, if we can call it that, and he was unwilling to pay it. And why was he unwilling to pay it? Because he didn't see that it was worth it. He didn't see that what he would receive through Christ was better than what he had built up for himself in this life. This may seem a little bit like a chicken or the egg kind of question, but I do think it's important to understand. It's not that he failed to trust Jesus because he couldn't first let go of his money, but he couldn't let go of his money because he didn't first trust Jesus. He didn't believe that Christ would be worth losing what he had already had. It's the opposite of Paul's attitude in Philippians chapter 3. I feel like I keep coming back to Philippians 3 uh, through this part of Luke's gospel. This is where Paul lists all of his accomplishments before coming to Christ, all the reasons that his, his people would have considered him righteous, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he calls himself, as to the law, blameless, at least that's how he thought of himself outside of Christ. But then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, for the sake of Christ. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul makes it clear that righteousness he hopes to count as his own. It comes from God through faith in Christ. But the passage goes on from there. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul makes two things crystal clear that we need to hold on to together. He knows that he will never earn or merit eternal life, but he also knows that in, in, in receiving this eternal life, he must endure great suffering to get there. Suffering comes with following Christ, the man of sorrows. Union with Christ, living in this broken world, this world that crucified the Savior, we also must be willing to endure suffering. Jesus knows this, so when he's talking to Peter back in Luke 18, it's not that Jesus is calling everyone to abandon your family. I mean, he just quoted, honor your father and mother, right? 
yet your father and mother might turn against you for following Christ. It might put a strain on relationships. Jesus promises that whatever cost comes with following him, it is a cost that is worth paying. There's more to say about this if we had time, but notice that in verse 30 there, there's benefit not only in the age to come, but also in this life. Now, if we know from 1 Corinthians 15, if there weren't benefit in, in eternal life, the age to come, we would be pitiable, but, but still there is blessing, there is benefit in this life. It's not that as a Christian our life is just pure misery, but suck it up because eternity will be worth it. No, Jesus says there are benefits in this life, even in the midst of whatever suffering or rejection we face. He doesn't list them here. Surely the Spirit's presence and, and comfort in our lives is one. Surely the church is called to be another, as you may have family forsake you and be forced to make a choice between uh, Christ and your family. We are meant to be given a new family in, in the church. So just to summarize where we've been at this point, you can't earn your way into the kingdom. With man, it's impossible. It depends on God. That doesn't mean that your actions do not matter. You may be called to sacrifice a good deal for following Jesus. That sacrifice isn't what save you, saves you. It is evidence and fruit of saving faith. But when times are tough, it's important to rest in Christ's promises. The cost of discipleship is worth it, that God is able to repay from abundant riches whatever you are forced to give up in the course of this life. And so the way that you live, the way that you sacrifice does matter. Don't trust in it as your merit for salvation, but do realize in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of sacrifice, that your God knows, your God sees, and your God will repay. Now, back to the question I left hanging. If no one is good except God alone, and if God therefore must supply the goodness that he requires, God must make possible for us what is impossible to us. How does that happen? Verse 31. Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated, spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. The disciples don't understand it until it happens, until the Holy Spirit comes and enables them not only to understand it, but to preach it with power. Which is part of why this is impossible for man. We need God even to wrap our heads around it. But what Jesus says to the twelve here is the gospel. The gospel is good news. The gospel is not what we've done, but what Jesus has done for us. Do you see the progression in the passage here? We started with the sacrifice that the rich young ruler wasn't able to make. The sacrifices that the disciples did make. But what we're building up to and the focus of our hope is the sacrifice that Christ made for us. That blows everything else out of the water. This is how God makes the impossible possible. Not only possible, but actual for those who trust in him. 
This is how the goodness of God alone brings us eternal life. This is how the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith in the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. No man can achieve the kingdom of God. It is impossible for man except the man who's also God, the man Jesus Christ, who was God but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant who identified with our humanity, who kept the law perfectly from his youth, the only man who ever has, who left everything to pursue his father's will even to the point of death. Again, only man who has kept every law, made every sacrifice, and that is where our hope is located, not in what we do, but in what he did for us. Justification is not found in the law that you kept, but the law that Christ kept. Justification is not found in what you've given up or what you've suffered, but what Christ gave up and what Christ suffered. Your righteousness is not something you store up by good works or position or accomplishments, but the riches of God's grace poured out for you in the blood of Christ. So if you're standing at the pearly gates, so to speak, someone asks you why they should let you in, the answer is not, I kept the commandments from youth. It's not even, I gave up all these things to get here. The answer is, Jesus died and rose again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that profound sacrifice. Christ crucified for us. We cannot wrap our heads around it. We cannot fathom it. It is in many ways, a deep mystery to us. It's a mystery how one man can be man and God can be God who is beyond pain and suffering and yet experience suffering and pain for us. It is a mystery. More than that, how our God, who alone is good, could love sinful creatures like us. We thank you for this glorious grace that we will never understand. We confess before you that our hearts are often like the rich ruler, that we think it's something we can do. Even if we have trusted in Christ, we find that our hearts still want to keep working for what can't be earned. And we ask that you would deliver us from this. Help us to grasp what that rich young ruler was unable to. That it is impossible. That no one is good except God. Help us to, in a good way, utterly despair of any righteousness in ourselves. And cast our hope entirely on the righteousness that you have graciously given for us. And yet at the same time, Lord, we know that as we do lay hold of that righteousness, as we do lay hold of Christ, we are transformed. We do know there are those who, who understand that 
and for that reason, hesitate to lay hold of Christ. And we also know that for those of us who are in Christ, we are tempted to grow weary as we experience the hardship that often comes with following Jesus Christ. For all of us here, Lord, whether for the first time or uh, anew again, help us to see that Christ is worth it. Perhaps that is what is fundamentally impossible for us to do on our own as sinners, as those who have rebelled against God, for us to see what we have so long run away from, to see that our God is glorious, is beautiful, is full of majesty and wonder, that you, our God, are the one who alone can fulfill our deepest longings, that we were created for fellowship with you, and that you have given us that possibility once again in Christ. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us, through whom we behold the glory of God, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Help us to see that Christ is glorious, that Christ is worth it. Help us to see this as we focus our hearts once again on the gospel message. You have given us everything. Jesus has paid it all. We thank you for your grace and your glory. Ask that you would be glorified in us. In Christ Jesus' name.